4. We're going to be looking at that passage in just a moment. Genesis chapter 4. It's good to see everyone out this morning. Good to be able to worship with you and study God's Word during the Bible study and, and a little bit more for just the next few moments throughout the rest of our service. Um, before we get into the lesson, I, I would just say one quick word just in, for housekeeping for the building here. Uh, generally, we try to, make, just for safety purposes, we try to keep the downstairs door locked and uh, I, the key has been missing a time or two for the last few weeks and so if, if make sure you talk to your kids, just make sure that they're not taking those keys and maybe uh, changing up the positions of those because we try to make sure that that door downstairs is locked once the services has started. So just just wanted to make you aware of that. Just just a quick reminder. Just want to continue thinking about the, the safety of, of everyone here as we study God's word and as we worship him together. As I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter four. We're going to be looking at this passage, and really, this is going to be the, the thematic verse that we use for our entire study this morning, because I think that there is something crucial that we learn in this verse, in particular in Genesis chapter 4. This is the story of Cain and Abel, and just we'll begin in verse 1 as we get to verse 7, but in verse 1, it says that, that the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a child, a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desires for you, but you must master it. Now, we're not really going to focus so much on the story of Cain and Abel, but I really want to focus on the fact that here you have two different offerings, you have two different actions made by two different individuals. One is is authorized, one is accepted by God, the other is not. And as Cain is the one whose offering is not accepted, he's very upset about this, he becomes angry, but what does God tell him? What is the instruction that God gives him? He says that you need to be careful because sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And I really want to focus on this idea throughout the study this morning because I think that this is, first of all, just in interesting imagery that God uses for sin and temptation. He likens it to that of an animal, that its desire is for you. It wants to eat you up. It wants to consume you. And, and he gives instruction on, with that being the case, how do you need to walk forward? What is the path forward for you? And what is the path forward for me? I think sometimes people talk about sin like it's an irresistible force that cannot be tamed, that cannot be denied. But that's, frankly, from the very beginning of the story, of God's story, that's completely false. What God says from the very beginning is rather the exact opposite. And so I just want to look at how God talks about this when he talks about sin and temptation. And first of all, at the very end of verse 7, what he tells Cain is, you must master it. I love the fact that he uses, that, that this is the word that's used. Your translation may say, you must rule over it. I think either translation is good. This is a command that God gives to Cain. This is a command ultimately that I think has universal applications to all of us. Now, if God 
commands us something, what do you think that means? That we're incapable of fulfilling that act? No, if God commands something of us, if God commands something of an individual, what that means is we are very capable of doing it. And in fact, one, one of the, it, it's funny when, when people, you try to talk about this passage with people who would say that we really have no choice in the matter. There's nothing that we can do. And, and you look at verse seven and they try to change the definition of what this word means. Master or your translation may say rule. It means exactly what you think it does. It means that you need to rule over it. You need to subdue it. You need to restrain it. Keep it out of your life. Now, again, I want to focus a little bit on that objection that people give. People will say, but we really, we have no choice in the matter. We can't help but sin. We're forced to sin because we're completely fallible and there's really nothing that we can do to help ourselves. I'm only human, a lot of times people say. Ultimately, I think that's just a huge excuse that people like to give so that way they can shift the blame from themselves. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But this is an objection that people make frequently. We don't have a choice. We were created as sinful creatures. Now, there's a lot wrong with that statement. But, but I just want to look at a couple passages very quickly, very quickly to show that the same word that's used that God uses in Genesis 4 means exactly what you think it does. First of all, in 2 Chronicles in chapter 20 in verse 6, as Jehoshaphat is facing some very, uh, some very terrifying numbers and opposition as, as he is ruling over the kingdom of Judah, as he prays to God, look at what he says about God. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens and are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. I think that there's very weighty truth in that statement. But let's look at Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rule, rules over all. Now the words highlighted there is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 4 for you must master or you must rule over it. The reason that I want to bring this up is because when people try to say, no, it doesn't mean that you can subdue it. It doesn't mean that you actually have a chance against it. And whatever they try to say, if that's true, if it doesn't mean that, then what does that mean about God? What does that mean about God's rule? And what does that mean about God's sovereignty? When the exact same word is used when talking about his rule and his authority. Does, does this mean that God does not have this kind of sovereignty? Does this mean that God does not rule over all the nations? No, I think, it, I think he does. And so very quickly, what you find is you start off, you start off with a, you start off immediately with, with a faulty notion. Not only are you, are you going against what God has said from the beginning of his story, but now you're saying things that would ultimately limit his power and his authority. And, and that's, that's very dangerous territory. In fact, let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Beyond that point, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Not only are they changing and, and, and implying some very serious things against God when they try to change the definition of what this word means, but look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in verse 11 beginning, as Moses is speaking to the people, what is it that God instructs Moses to say? For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Now from the very beginning of that passage, what, what is it that God says? That this is too difficult? Or does he say, it is not too difficult for you? But 
I think people like to try and change what God has said about this. When, when we talk about sin, especially when the religious world at large talks about sin, they try to change up what this means. And I think there's many reasons for that. But ultimately, this objection, it, 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 it's not an objection at all. We have a choice on whether or not to sin. We get to choose whether or not we are going to break God's law or if we are going to keep it. What's so tragic about this story is that everyone has chosen not to keep it. Everyone has chosen to break it. To break it. And I think that's one of the reasons why people may try to change up what God's law actually says about the matter because, well, if, if that's the case, how, how, could, how could God have made us in this way? Well, well, we'll talk more about that. But this is a choice that we are capable of making. Which means, ultimately, it's on me if I decide that I'm going to sin. Again, I really think this is the main crux of the argument. I think this is why people want to change what these words mean. Because they don't want to accept the fact that I am to blame. I don't want to accept the fact that I am the one that has brought this condemnation upon myself. And it is not God who has created me to sin. May it never be said. In fact, let's go over to James chapter 1. We already read Deuteronomy 30. But James chapter 1, in verse 13 beginning. Look at what James here says about God and when it comes to his, even his people being uh, tempted by the devil. In verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And I like the fact that he uses this word a couple of times in just James chapter 1. Don't be deceived. Into thinking that, that God is the one to blame here. But ultimately, that is the conclusion of the matter. They may not say it outright, but that is the conclusion. That's the result of taking the false doctrine and saying that God created us to sin. That means he's the one to blame, not me. And so what we do is try to play the blame game. We try to shift the blame over to someone else. But I like the, the illustration that's given here in verses 13 through 15 of James chapter 1. He, he uses words of, of conception and giving birth to sin. And what that does is bring forth death. You know, it takes two parties to conceive, doesn't it? And let me tell you something, God ain't one of them. I am one of the... I'm one of those parties, but God is not a part of that. God does not tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. But rather, in verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so, of course, it is not God who is to blame. And, and, and let me just say, once more, if, if, if I haven't made the case completely clear, when we try to say God has created us to sin, he has created sinful creatures, that means he is the one to blame. So we need to do away with that argument completely, if we even remotely believe that. But, but I think people do this maybe sometimes without even thinking about it especially the religious world. Sometimes there are excuses given to maybe get people out of, uh, maybe out of the, the consequences that they should receive. So a lot of times people say, well, there's, there's a predisposition to sin. So there's a predisposition for someone to, to be a homosexual. Well, it's all about genetics. And so someone has this gay gene and that makes them sinful. I don't think that's true. In fact, if, if there was any scientific evidence that, that was even remotely pointing to that end, it, you would never hear the end of it. And so, no, that's not true. People try to say, well, I have a predisposition to pornography. It's addicting. 
but do you really, can you really say you have a predisposition to it? I have a predisposition to alcohol. There are many reasons why people get started in alcohol and drugs, but is there really a predisposition? Is there really a, a notion that God created us so that way we would sin against him? But this is, these are excuses that people make all the time. And ultimately what they're trying to do is say, it's not my fault. But it is. We broke God's law. We decided to break his commandments. And we were fully capable not to. He makes that clear from the beginning in Genesis chapter 4. And so he says, you must master it. You must rule over it. You must subdue it. And make sure you walk in the path that I have given to you. Follow that pattern that we talked about in Hebrews chapter 8. Well, that's the very end of verse 7. But right before he says that you must master over it, he says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And I think that this is interesting as well because I think this helps us when we look at how temptation tends to affect God's creation, when it tends to affect his people. I think this helps us fight against it. I think this ultimately helps us figure out ways that we can subdue it, that we can master it. But we have to understand that its desire is for us, first of all, to die. Always, when sin is involved, when temptation is involved, our destruction, our demise, damnation is the goal. Now, over in 1 Peter chapter 5, we even kind of alluded to this earlier, but 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 8, Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he continues on in verse 9 to say, But you need to resist him, firm in your faith. We need to understand that the devil, think about that imagery. If you, if you heard, and I know that this is kind of a crazy parallel hypothetical, but if you heard that maybe there was a trailer hauling exotic animals such as lions, and you heard that it got into a crash and you know, 10 different lions got out and they're roaming around Somerset, how would you, would that change your daily habits of going out to town? Would that change your daily habits of maybe allowing your kids outside and, you know, playing in the backyard or just going off to the woods. And I mean, we, we would probably kind of be a little bit more, I would hope we would be at least a little bit more cautious. We'd be a little bit more wary. And why? Because there is a dangerous creature. And if we know that it's hungry, we want to stay away from it. In fact, there was, I remember when Paige, Paige and I were on our honeymoon in uh, Gatlinburg and we went to Cade's Cove and it was really cool because we actually got to see a bear and, and it was causing so much traffic and everyone was just stopping for you know just so that everyone else had to stop behind them which was so gracious of them but it was pretty cool to see the the bear and we even took a picture while we were driving by but we did not stop because we quickly realized that it was a cub and I was thinking where's the mother <laughs> and when she finds out that there's a bunch of people approaching this little baby bear and they're taking pictures of it I don't want to be there and so we didn't get out like everyone else and started taking pictures. We just started driving on because I wasn't willing to take that risk. We need to look at temptation in the same way. I'm not willing to take this risk. I'm not willing to approach. Why? Because the end is death. The end is damnation to a, on a spiritual level. Go over to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. In verse 3 of Proverbs chapter 5 beginning. I love the book of Proverbs because it's just filled with God's wisdom. But frequently, there's this imagery that's given of wisdom calling out to, to her children. Wisdom calling out that men would not 
turn to the, to the path of folly. And folly and sin and temptation is often illustrated as, as an adulteress. And in verse 3 of chapter 5, it says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. But what does he say kind of emphatically throughout those few verses? Guess where her feet lies. Guess where she ends up? Death. She, she brings you to Sheol. She brings you to death. That is the end goal. Now, I understand that it's easy to overlook that sometimes, but this is the result. And, and that's why I say we need to remember these things that we're going to talk about when it comes to uh, sin constantly trying to bring us down. I think the main reason people do sin so often is because they just weren't thinking about it. How often have you heard someone after doing something that they knew was wrong, they say, oh, I, had I been thinking, I wouldn't have done it. I just wasn't thinking at the time. Why do people say that? Because they really weren't. They knew the consequences initially. But for a moment, they decided to turn their brains off. I think this is what happened to Peter when he denied Jesus. I know, I, I really believe that Peter uh, sincerely meant it when he told Jesus, I would go to death for you. But in that moment, when he denied him three times, where was that resolve? I don't think he never had that resolve, but he definitely turned it off for a moment, didn't he? And because of the situation surrounding him, because of all of the, uh, the, the trials and the persecution surrounding him, it's very easy to forget that the end goal is death. Now, I, I remember there's been a few times where this has happened, where I've been talking to someone, whether it be in a study or just in passing, and people will just be talking about the Bible, talking about you know certain things that God has, has condemned and certain things that God has said we need to stay away from. And as we've talked during that conversation, it, and I'm not kidding, this has happened on numerous occasions. People say, well, I know this is going to send me to hell. <laughs> Do you now? I don't believe you. And, I, and I've told people from time to time, I, I'm sorry, but I just simply do not believe that. Well, how can you say that? This is my thought. Well, if you knew that this was going send to you, send you to hell, I don't think that you would continue doing the thing that you're doing. It's either you don't believe in hell, really, or you just don't understand it. Because no one can look at the pits of hell. No one can look at the fiery judgment and, and, and end conclusion of the matter of a sinner and say, you know what? I think that I'll keep toying. I think I'll keep playing with fire. No, no one can look at what God has said about the judgment and say, I'm not so worried about that that I'm not willing to stop doing what I'm doing right now. So when people say that, no, they, they, they really don't believe in hell, else they would stop. But this is the end goal, that when we sin and, and we break God's commandment, it is going to send us to hell if we don't repent of that sin. Now, if we have this notion spiritually, I think we would make drastic Choices. We would make drastically different choices, kind of like what we were talking about if we heard that a bunch of lions were roaming around the area in Somerset. That would really change our daily routine. In the same way, it needs to change us, our spiritual lives. It needs to make, uh, help us fashion new habits so that way we won't just approach that, roar, that prowling lion that seeks to devour us. Now, not only is the end result death, but sin also is ultimately trying to deceive us. The aim is for us to think, I think, that we'll just be happier without God. And I think that this is a lot of what Solomon tries to indicate in Ecclesiastes is time and time again, people go down these paths and they think it's going to make them happy. They think it's going to bring them joy. Once I get to this, you know, 
prestigious promotion, that, then I'll be happy. But what Solomon says is, it's a dead-end street. All you've done is waste time. And it doesn't make that person happier because there's always something else. It doesn't actually bring them the satisfaction. It doesn't bring them the joy that they wanted it to. And what does he end with? Only God can bring you that joy. But this is the goal of temptation. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 very quickly. Paul is referencing what happened in Genesis chapter 3. But look at what he says about what happened to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent was talking with her. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. As he's talking to the, the church in Corinth, he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, I like the fact that he makes this connection. He, he, he's, he's not necessarily saying that, hey, the serpent has come and literally talked to you. What he's saying is, just like she was deceived, I'm afraid that you are being deceived or that you will be deceived. And so you need to remember what I came and preached to you. And, and he says this on multiple occasions. And Galatians chapter 1 is another really good example of this. Don't forget what you have in Christ. Don't forget what you've already been given. But again, it comes down to, I think, people tend to forget. Or they just outright ignore these blessings. And therefore, it's much easier to sin against God. It's much easier to give in. How did the serpent deceive Eve? He ultimately said, well, look what God is depriving you of. Has God really said this? He knows, he only said this because he knows that you're going to become like him. You're going to know right from wrong. And you know what? They got what they wanted. At least she did at the time. She got to learn right from wrong. But did she not already have that in God? As he, he as the standard. But they decided to, to forget that for a moment. But all it took was a moment for them to lose that beautiful fellowship that they had with God. And so I think in a similar way, the devil comes and he tries to tempt us by saying, you could be happier if you just did this. You could be richer in life if you just took this path. What does that look like? Well, maybe you just need to skip a few assemblies. I'm not saying all of them, but maybe you need to skip a few of them. And, and you know, you get that double overtime. Maybe, you know, you, you, you get to go on vacation. Or the devil comes and says, you could, you could have more fun. I think this is one of the main things with, with the younger generations. Look at all the things that you're missing out on. Don't you want to just taste those waters just for a moment? I'm not saying forever, but just for a moment. Again, what does it take but a moment to lose everything? But this is the way that temptation works. It wants us to be deceived. It wants us to forget. It just wants us to let our guard down. And so we give in to sin because we think, ultimately, that it will make us happier than the relationship that we have with God. Remember what it said in James chapter 1 and verse 14, that we sin because we're enticed by our own lust. And we want to pursue that. And so the, the, the person who is an opportunist liar, the pathological liar, they get into a situation and, and, and they just lean back on their what they often do, and they tell another lie, they fib a little bit more, but why do they do that? Because they think this will get me out of trouble. Well, maybe for the time, it probably won't, honestly, because generally when you do lie like that, it tends to build on itself to where you can no longer keep up the facade. But maybe it will keep you safe for a time. It won't in the end. Or the, por the, the porn addict, the person that can't stop viewing the, this kind of filthy material. What do they think? Just like the younger generation, I don't want to miss out. I can't stop. I don't want to stop because I always have more time. Maybe. But 
All it takes is a moment and we lose everything. Or maybe when you think more about the, the, the Christian and how we're supposed to be living, maybe the temptation is just simply just compromise on God's word. I'm not saying forever. I'm not saying on everything, but just on one little detail. It'll be easier this way. There won't be so much discomfort. There may be a better outcome this way than just doing it God's way. <laughs> I, I think that this is one of the main issues that, that, that Christians have today is compromise. And, not just, it, it, and it doesn't look like it on the surface. It's just very subtle. Sometimes we rush, we rush people into being baptized this way because what, what happens is as we're talking to people about, about what it means to be saved, how to be saved. We, we, we have this down. You need to believe, you need to hear the word, you need to believe it, you need to be faithful, confess, repent, and you need to be baptized. Now, people understand that. And they say, oh, well, I know I need to be baptized to become a Christian. Well, have you done all these other things? Have you repented? Have you confessed? Are you willing to let go of the sins that you currently have in your life? But then what do we sometimes, what are we tempted to do? Well, let's just, let's just rush them into that, and then we'll get to that later. What Jesus says is you need to repent now. Before you can ever be a part of my kingdom, you have to be born again. But sometimes we rush that because we think, I, I, I think that this will actually be a better way of doing things, better than God's way. Again, I know that it's subtle. We don't, we don't think that way, but it's so easy because it's deceiving. Temptation always wants us to, to momentarily have a lapse of judgment and not fully think out what we're actually uh, what we're actually about to do. And so whatever benefit we think we might get from, from the temptation, without question, it is always going to be worse than just listening to God. But not only that, finally, it also just wants us to succumb. And what I mean by this is temptation exhausts us. It wears us down, or at least that's its goal. It wants us to be tired. It wants us to just be done. I, I go back to Proverbs chapter 5 and what it says there about the adulteress. As she, how does she talk to the man that she is trying to bring in? For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. What is she doing? Yes, the end is death, but she's trying to get him off his guard. She's trying to, get, to forget about all of that. And all the things she's saying are so nice, it's so sweet. All the things she's saying, oh, how beautiful, how lofty her speech. But what is it trying to do? It's trying to make us lose our resolve. It's trying to make us lose our resolve to, to continue following God, to continue going down the righteous path, the narrow path. I have Judges 16, in verse 16 there, uh, because I, I just think, every time I think about temptation, I think about Samson. Samson, we know him because he is the strongest man who ever lived in Bible history and, and I think the history of man, period. And he had even fought 1,000 men alone and killed them all. And he was victorious. And I mean, you think about that kind of story. That's the kind of stuff that boys read in comic books and they're like, that's what I want to be. I want to be that mighty and that strong. Samson was. He was mighty and he was victorious. No one could beat him. But who is he subdued by again? He was subdued by one woman. And she didn't have to raise up her hand against him, necessarily. She did cut his hair. But she didn't come and try to punch him. She didn't come and try to, you know, stab him while he was sleeping. What she did was daily wear him down. She didn't overcome him by pure strength, but by exhausting him. I like what it says in Judges 16 and verse 16, that his soul was vexed to death. You ever heard people say that? 
It's not just teenagers. It's everybody. I am, this, I am annoyed to death at this. I'm so sick of hearing this song, Baby Shark. I am so sick of talking to this person at work. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed to death. I can't take anymore. And I can't tell you how many times people, faithful Christians, have said those words. I just can't take it anymore. There was a man who was married, and, and both he and his wife were Christians. They both knew what, what the only reason that God says one can get a divorce. They knew that word. And the man, he was trying to stay faithful. He, he had so much resolve. And what he ultimately decided was, okay, even though there has been no adultery, she wants a divorce, I'm just going to give it to her. And, and, and his friends were trying to come to him and say, don't you, don't you know what the Bible says? He says, yes, but I just can't take it anymore. That's what sin does. It wears us down to the point where I know what God has said. I know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe we're not deceived in the moment. Maybe I realize I know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't take it anymore. That's what temptation does. How does this happen today? I think that this happens ultimately by people not cutting the temptation out completely, but constantly entertaining it, which we'll talk more about. But the, if, if you, you, you see someone who is an alcoholic, what do they do? Are they going to go into the, the, the store and peruse the liquor aisle? Are they going to walk through that? Or if they're really trying to get away from the temptation, are they going to walk way around that aisle so they don't even see it, so they don't even smell it? So that way, uh, maybe they don't even go to that grocery store. I tell you what, every time I, I get on a diet short-lived as it may be, what I always make sure I do is I don't walk through that candy and cookie aisle at Kroger because let me tell you something, they know what they're doing when they present that stuff. I mean, it, it, it's presented in such a way to make sure, hey, you haven't eaten in a while. I think you deserve a, a, bo a, bo a, a box of Oreos. I think you deserve a bag of Doritos. And so when I'm on a diet, I try to make sure I don't go anywhere near that. But what do people, what could I do? I just, I'm not going to buy anything. I just want to see it. I just, I just want to look at that beautiful picture of the crunchy crumbs just falling to the ground and just filled with that delicious cream. I just want to see it. What am I doing? I'm toying with the idea. And ultimately, what happens is, particularly when it comes to temptation, we will fall because that's not resolve. What it does is just toying with the idea and we will fail and we will falter and we will give in to the temptation ultimately. So all of this is true and frankly, this should be concerning because it is a lot. There's a lot here that we have to understand and there's a lot here that we have to fight against. But I think that ultimately when you go back to Genesis chapter 4, what God makes clear is there is a chance for us to do better. Now, what it takes is making the application that the Bible instructs. And very quickly, I just want to make a couple applications here. When you look at the application the Bible makes, it only uses extreme application. It only uses extreme language. For example, go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As Jesus is talking during the Sermon on the Mount about the man who would lust after a woman, look at what he says you need to do. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29. If this, if, if, if this is something you're struggling with, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble in verse 29, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What is the imagery he gives there? If your right arm is the, is the culprit, if it is what is helping you sin, you cut it off. 
If it's your eye, you tear it out. I tell you what, that's extreme. Now, what is Jesus trying to get across here? When you are trying to fight against temptation, when you are trying to make sure that you don't break God's law, he uses terms to say you eradicate that temptation with extreme prejudice. You get rid of it completely. And if you're not willing to make this kind of scriptural application, you ultimately will succumb. And so I've used pornography as an example several times because I think it's very indicative of what sin does. It's addictive and it tries to get our guard down. And so what does the pornography addict need to do? What does he need to be willing to do if he really is serious about not doing this anymore? Well, he may have to downgrade. I really like the iPhone I have, but there's a lot of temptation on it. So maybe we need to go back to the dinosaur phones. We need to go back to the flip, the flip phones. Don't have any internet access. All we can do is call and, and text people. Well, I mean, I, there's a lot of things that I can get done on my phone. But yeah, but are you serious about this? Do you really want this to end? I've known, I remember a story, there was a, there was a boy, but no longer a teenager, he was in college, and what he had done was tear down his door and burn it that led to his bedroom, so that way there was no way he could ever even entertain the thought of clicking on a website or watching a video that he shouldn't be watching. Because at any time, anybody could just walk by and see what he's doing. And he wanted to make sure there's not going to be any there's not, there's not going to be any temptation for me to watch something I shouldn't be. Now, you may say, well, what about the privacy he needs when he needs to change? Well, he went to the bathroom and did that. But I, it, Now, so people would look at that and say, that is just, that is stupid. May, maybe, maybe to you, if you've never had that problem, but for the man who is serious about making sure that he is not going to go to hell and that he's going to be with God, he's going to take those kinds of applications. Because he doesn't want to sin against God anymore. He wants to make sure that he is, ends up in heaven with him. And alcohol, I know another uh, example that we've used. But it may be that the person who is addicted to that kind of sin, maybe what they need to do is just stop hanging out with the friends that they've had. But I've had these friends forever. They may be the very reason that you have been tempted as much as you have been to sin. And what God often says throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, is you need to be willing to forsake certain relationships. Are you willing to, for me? When Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and onward, the example he uses is family. Are you willing to forsake family if they're the ones causing you to sin? That's, that's, so, that's, that's such a big application. That, that, that's so extreme. It is. But God doesn't want Facebook friends. He wants people that are truly willing to overcome this so that way they can have a relationship with him. So are you willing to make that extreme application? Not only that, but it says that we can't even entertain sin, as we've already alluded to. Over in Proverbs chapter 7, once more it uses the imagery of, of the, the adulteress and of, and of the, the woman of folly. Proverbs 7 and verse 24. It says, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Now again, this looks like complete and utter dedication actually made the choice. It doesn't look like partially making the decision, walking through the cookie aisle and just glancing at the Oreos. No, you have made your decision. You're not even going to go down that path. I don't want to be tempted. Therefore, I'm going to make sure that I don't see anything that causes me to lust after someone. I'm going to make sure that I don't walk down the aisle that may cause me to engage in the sin of gluttony. I'm going to make sure that I don't. 
And I tell you, there's even more examples that we could go through. I remember one man that was so struggling with lust that there was a sign that he would drive by to work. And what he did was he would, so that way he didn't see the, the nakedness that was on the sign. He would go out of his way to get to work every single day. It added another 15 minutes. But I tell you what, that's a man that's dedicated to making sure he doesn't sin against God. That looks like someone who is not going to entertain the thought. You don't want to be with the adulteress, the proverb writer says. So make sure you don't see her. You don't walk by her. You don't smell her perfume. You don't talk to her. Extreme application, I understand. But this is what we need to be focused on if we want to fight against, if we want to resist against the devil and temptation. In fact, the Bible says that if we even entertain it in our mind, we've already lost the battle. If you go back to Matthew 5 and verse 28, that's what Jesus says. It, it's not just that after you've acted on the lust, but if you've even thought about a woman in your mind, you've lost the battle, you've sinned. And I think that this is one of the main things that would help us in this battle is if we just understood that it, it's not just failure to go all the way. It is failure to entertain it at all, period. Once I even think about this person in this way, that is sinful, and I have lost. And if we don't view it in that way, we will continue to fail. We won't succeed. So we need to make sure we don't entertain it. Also, we need to make sure that we flee where the Bible says to flee. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 18. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And here, I think the context is talking about sexual impurity. It's talking about fornication and, and the, the sexual sins. But I think there's a, a universal application here. You flee immorality, period. You flee sin, period. I, I think one of the best examples to give is looking at what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife came to him and tried to be suggestive with him. You come lie with me. What did he do? He left. He fled. He, he fled so quick and fast that the man left his clothes behind. Are you, are you that willing? That you're willing to look foolish? Look foolish for God to make sure that you stay in a right relationship with him. Keeping uh, with, with what we looked at in James earlier, James chapter one, as it talks about how we need to make sure that we don't think that God is the one that temp that's tempting us, but rather that he is the one that is helping us get through it. Look in James chapter four very quickly in verse seven. It says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It is only when we do these things, when we make these extreme applications that we've talked about, that we will draw nearer to God. You can't say, I'm drawing nearer to God if I'm entertaining sin. You can't say, I'm resisting the devil if I'm not cutting it out completely. No, it takes all of these things. Are you willing to draw near to God? That means you have to submit to him and flee, turn away from, resist the devil. This is the gospel message. And as, as we sometimes say, it's not the easiest. It's not always easy to resist temptation. It's not always easy to make sure that we are not overcome. But what God says is, if you submit to me, you resist the devil, you keep on persevering. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for you, for those that love him. And so maybe that is the ultimate question. Do you love him? Do you love him enough to make those applications? Do you love him enough to choose him over what's enticing you.
If you're a Christian, maybe you have gone astray. Maybe you've allowed that lust to come back and creep into your life and, and take you over once more. You don't have to remain a slave of that sin. You can make things right with God this very morning. You can get the help of your brethren here. If it's something that you need accountability with, use the tools that God has given you. If you're not a Christian, understand this has been a difficult message this morning, but it doesn't have to stay that way. You don't have to remain in judgment. You don't have to remain in the path of sinners that leads to hell. You can break that bondage. Maybe one of the best ways that the devil tries to deceive us is you can't break the chains that I've put on you. There's no way that you can get out of this. What Jesus says is over and over again, you can't, but I can. So are you willing to make him your taskmaster? Are you willing to take his yoke? You can do that this very morning. Are you willing to hear everything he says? Believe in what he says. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Make a confession based on that belief. Repent. That means turn away from all the things he says are sin. And be baptized into his newness of life. You can have that salvation this very morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.